0: in the book of Philippians again, as you might have guessed, and so I'd invite you to open there Philippians chapter 3. I just want to thank Parker and the team for leading us this morning. Sort of gives you goosebumps to sing, O oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, O oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing His praise. O oh, Lord, O oh, Lord our God. And so with that finish line in sight, uh, let's go to the Lord this morning in his word. Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 1. I also want to say thank you uh, to Jake. I appreciate the work that he does and for, uh, for Pastor Blythe and our student ministry. They just, um, those guys love not only the Lord, but our students. And I'm so thankful not only for them, but for the volunteers who are serving in student ministry. We're very blessed And so uh, let me just say a thank you as well as we start today. Philippians chapter 3, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, we'll start with verse 1 of chapter 3 this morning. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own Father, would you help us to run the race with patience that is set before us. Lord, would you help us to press on, to lay hold of that for which we also were laid hold of, to make our own that for which Christ Jesus has made us his own. And so, Lord, today in our hearts, our lives, with the power of the Holy Spirit, speak through your word as only he can challenge encourage and draw us to yourself and to your plans we thank you and praise you in Jesus name amen in the year 2000 I hosted a Monday night football party in my dorm room for about seven or eight guys at the University of North Carolina at Asheville and we were going to watch the Miami Dolphins go against the New York Jets now, I have to tell you this, since there's only a few of us in here today, don't tell anybody else, but for most of my life, I have been a New York Jets fan. <laughs> Pray for me. It's been tough. I got to tell you, for the last 15 years, I've mostly withdrawn my heart because I couldn't take it anymore. But For those of you who hadn't maybe lived a long time, there was a time in the late 90s and the early 2000s where the New York Jets were actually a good football team. I know that's hard to imagine, but they had a run there for a while where they weren't too bad. The year 2000, I hosted a Monday night football party in my dorm room. That meant I had one love seat that about four guys were going to try to sit on while another few brought in desk chairs. And we gathered around the television students that was this big. That's how big it was. That's how big the the only way you could make a TV bigger back then was to make it furniture and put it in a giant wooden console on the floor. That's all we had, didn't we? But well, we all gathered around this little TV because we were going to watch Monday Night Football against the Jets and the Dolphins, and at the time they were the two teams with the best record in the league and they were vying for first place in the division. Tom Brady hadn't started playing games yet, so there was still hope for Jets and Dolphins fans out there. So as we gathered around that TV, we started to watch, and this game had been billed to be a clash of the Titans, and as it started to go, we found that it was anything but a clash of the Titans, and the Miami Dolphins set to uh, uh, absolutely destroy the New York Jets on national television. By the start of the fourth quarter, it was 30-7, to and the New York Jets radio announcer said, with one quarter to go, this game is over. Now, out of that whole stadium that day, there was only one believer that could be found to be put on camera, and his name was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger was brought into the Monday Night Football booth when they realized that he was in attendance, and he came in, and with a score 30 to seven, he said something along this, in the best Arnold accent that I can come up with this morning, he said something along the lines of, no, the Jets have the Dolphins exactly where they want them. That's a terrible accent, I shouldn't even try to do that. He said, the Dolphins, they will be terminated. You can see the Jets have them there. They're going to come back and win this. Everybody laughed at him. And Jet Stadium was half empty at the start of the fourth quarter. Not only was Jet Stadium half empty, but as the fourth quarter started, I found I was the only guy left in my dorm room watching that game. (laughs) Everybody else figured they had other things to do that night. Well, something strange started happening. Vinny Testaverde, the quarterback for the Jets, began drawing plays in the dirt because the Dolphins seemed to know all the other plays that the New York Jets had. And then one touchdown happened, and another touchdown happened, and another touchdown happened. At the time, only Joe Montana and Kenny Stabler had thrown four touchdown passes in the fourth quarter, but Vinny Testaverde became the third one to do that that night. Down 37 to 30 at the end of the fourth quarter, there was one play left, and Vinny Testaverde drew up a trick play or pulled one out of the playbook that was a trick play, and the lineman was going to be the one to catch that last pass. Sure enough, this play-action fake set off, and the lineman headed for the end zone, and Vinny Testaverde threw the ball to somebody who had never caught an NFL pass before. His name was Jumbo Elliott, and he was a lineman for the New York Jets. And that ball hit him in the chest and it hit him in the hands and it hit him in the chest again and the ball went towards the ground with Jumbo Elliott desperately trying to pull that catch in. Somehow this lineman got his hands under the ball and as he fell on top of the ball the New York Jets were tied and it wasn't too long after that that they would go into overtime. Now, all around New York, even though the World Series was taking place, and it was a a Mets-Yankees series that year, all New York, the, the people had decided they were going home. But as they were listening to the radio and they realized all of a sudden there's a football game going on at Jet Stadium, all these fans started showing back up. Now normally they don't let you back in the stands but there were so many people who came they knew they were going to have a riot and so they just pulled the turnstiles up and all of a sudden Jets stadium was full again and the crowd was chanting. And the longest Monday night football game that would later be voted the greatest Monday night football game of all time ended after one in the morning when the Jets kicker finally scored the points that meant the New York Jets had come from behind to nobody's belief and won that game. We come to a passage of Scripture today where I think we see what I call the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. The magnum opus, the great sort of testimony of his life's work and where his heart is coming from. If you're sort of thinking what's the most passionate passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul writes, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater one than what we read this morning. And so I take the phrase that I think stands out to me above all the rest, and it's this from the Apostle Paul, but I press on. And we read about a man who is shackled in chains as these words are being written, and he's calling on the church to keep going and to not give up. And so in the theme of but I press on, I invite you to come with me into Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this morning to dive into a few things in the time that we have this morning. You'll see that the very first sentence that Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 1, begins with this word, finally, or in conclusion. Uh, Pastor Blythe and I have joked at times that for when we speak and when, when we as pastors speak, sometimes that in conclusion can be a testy thing. As you read the Apostle Paul, it says finally, and there's still two chapters to go, You probably have heard some of us before say, in conclusion, and just wondered, how many exit doors does this sermon have? Are we going to get, you know, done with this thing soon? I'm getting ready to close. I'm getting ready to close. The word finally that starts chapter 3 here really probably would be most literally translated to say, and as for the rest, as far as the rest is concerned, as for what remains, and then Paul says, my brothers rejoice. Once again, he's driving home the same point. Choose joy. Respond in joy. You can rejoice even in the trials that I've said you have as he's written the first two chapters. as there challenges the church is facing? There's challenges, obviously, that he's facing. Not sure if he's going to even survive the imprisonment that he is in. Rejoice. And to write the same things to you to write the same things. Chapter three is gonna sound a whole lot like chapter one and two in some ways. And I found out in my life sometimes you and I gotta hear the same thing over and over again, don't we? Martin Luther used to um, preach a gospel message every Sunday. Somebody came up to him in his church after a while and said, why is it every week you preach on the gospel? Can't we hear about something else other than the gospel? Every week you give a gospel message. Why do you do that every single week? And Martin Luther looked at his parishioner and said, Because every week you forget it. (laughs) To write the same things to you is no trouble, Paul says. It's no trouble. Well, wait a second, Paul, you're in prison, we're over here, we've got false teachers, we've got people who are trying to chase their own pursuits, it's all about them, we've got this and we've got that, you're gonna be sending back Epaphroditus, he almost died and we've got all these things that we're facing, it's no trouble. Not only is it no trouble, Paul says it's safe for you. It's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Finally, my brothers, rejoice. And as I write the same things, recognize that it's no trouble and it's safe. Five things today. Number one is this. Paul begins to go through a list to say, be aware of the challenge that some folks bring. Be aware of the challenge that some folks bring. It's gonna get personal. He's been personal so far in, in different sections and now he's gonna be personal at the start of what he says here today. Be aware of the challenge that some folks bring. Verse two, look out for the dogs. You say, well, I like dogs. I wonder what it would be like for the Apostle Paul to sit in here today and to find out that for a lot of our dogs, they live inside of our house, they sit on our couch, some of them sleep in our bed, they get filtered water, and they get the best, you know, engineered kibble or food or whatever it might be, whether it's your dog, whether it's your cat. I think the Apostle Paul in much of world history would be really surprised. Some of you in here who've got some age on you, I'm sort of at the ceiling of people who remember dog houses. For the students that are in here today, they've never seen a dog house except in the Charlie Brown cartoons. <laughs> Snoopy's flying the Red Baron, you know, and, and that's the only dog house they've ever seen. Dogs that used to live outside and now are inside. And so sort of go with me here back a few years when Paul says, watch out for the dogs. He's not speaking of the dog that's in your living room right now, uh, wearing a sweater vest and, uh, you know, (laughs) had nothing but filtered water and and premium food for the years of his life. I remember in Romania when I got to spend a summer there and live there about 20 years ago and What it was like to see packs of dogs, stray dogs, that just circulated the town. They were scavengers. Sometimes they'd get in fights with each other. They were looking for what food you would drop. They were looking for whatever their next, you know, gratification was going to be in any way, shape, or form. That was their whole existence was just to get to the next thing. They had no greater concern. They had no true, you know, relationship with people. People just sort of wanted them to stay away from them. When Paul writes about dogs, that for most of world history has been what the relationship between dogs and humans has somewhat been. And so when Paul says, look out for the dogs, we've got a term that sometimes is a connotation for the Gentile world, the pagan world, the the world that does not know the Lord. But I believe what he's saying in this is, look out for those who their very existence is only whatever the next thing is. There's no concern for spiritual things, there's no concern for moral things, there's no concern for ethical things, that it's simply about them, that it's simply their own destiny. There's nothing that they're thinking about that's of deeper meaning than trying to fill their own stomach or, or, you know, satisfy themselves in some way. Look out for those who are perhaps godless, unspiritual, and, and don't have any spiritual Agenda for what they're, they're walking through life with. So look out from those, for those who are far from God. He then says, look out for the evildoers. And you say, well, is he saying the people who do evil outside of the body of the church or the people who do evil perhaps inside the body of the church? Yes, both, and. For those who would do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, watch out for evil, creeping into your life and the lives of others. Watch out for giving support to wrong just because they're people who belong to your tribe versus people who don't belong to your tribe. Whether it's your church tribe, or your family tribe, or your political tribe, or your social tribe, or whatever it may be, distinguish right from wrong. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and then Paul says, look out for the false circumcision or those who mutilate the flesh. The term actually means both things. Paul's intentionally writing about these people who have a false understanding of circumcision and a false understanding of Christ so that they're more concerned with what they can do to someone's physical body than the spiritual fulfillment of that ritual that has been found in Christ Jesus alone. And so watch out for those folks who are far from God or do not know him. Watch out for those folks whose desires are evil, and watch out for those folks who claim to speak for God and claim to walk with God, and yet they're chasing after legalism or a false righteousness of some kind, and they want to bring others into that fold as well. That covers a pretty large spectrum. Paul says, be aware of the challenge that some folks bring. And kind of in that same vein, he's not only saying beware of that from the outside, but also on the inside, verse uh, 3, for we are the circumcision or the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The second thing that I think Paul is driving home this morning is this, the more we know Jesus, the less we trust ourselves. The more we know Jesus, the more we'd be willing to say, you know what, it's not just those dogs and evildoers and false circumcision that's out there, it's how in my own heart, my own flesh, my own life, I am just as prone to walk down those paths. And So the more we trust Jesus, the more His light shines into our darkness, and the closer we walk with Him, something's going to happen. The Bible describes this as sometimes as people, when the light of Christ starts to shine to those in the darkness, we sort of creep away because we enjoy the darkness because it doesn't shine light on our own hearts and lives. But the closer we walk with the Lord Jesus, the more we realize I don't have any reason to brag about myself. I don't have any reason to put too much confidence in myself. I'm not going to somehow lean on my own strength and my own understanding because a relationship with Jesus is going to point us to the fact that, you know what, The more we know him, the less we trust ourselves. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The more I know Jesus and the more I trust him, the more I'm going to say, you know what? I don't need to put myself in a situation where I've got to make a a right choice after, you know, three other potential wrong choices. I don't need to put myself in a situation where I've got to trust my own strength or my own, uh, you know, whatever. I need to be someone who recognizes, no, Jesus is the one who has the strength and I'm someone who's quite weak. If I'm going to walk with him, I need to put confidence in him, not myself, and be on guard. Billy Graham, some years ago, was asked by a reporter at the time when the 1980s and early 90s when so many well-known Christian figures were just in the news for wrong reasons. And they asked Billy Graham, they said, how is it that you've been able to make it in ministry as long as you have and we haven't read these kind of stories about you? And Billy Graham said, I walk scared. What he meant by that wasn't that he was fearful and afraid all the time, but he meant he recognized his own human frailty his own possibility of making wrong choices. He didn't place all his confidence in himself, but he placed it in the Lord Jesus and said, for me, I've got to make sure uh, that I'm walking as if it's possible for me uh, to make a wrong choice if I'm not remaining with the Lord and guarding my heart in a number of ways. And so we're aware of the challenge that some folks bring. Number two, the more we know Jesus, the less we trust ourselves. Number three, I'd say to you that there's nothing on our spiritual resume that means anything except that we belong to Jesus. Just keep tearing us down here this morning (laughs) from the words of the Apostle Paul. There's actually nothing on our spiritual resume that means anything except that we belong to Jesus. Y'all know what a resume is, right? Some of y'all are gonna get ready to know what that is in the next few years. It's the place where you list out Whatever accomplishments or previous, you know, things you've done, whatever it might be for a job that you hope to have at some point. Years ago, Adoniram Judson, the early missionary to Burma, wrote out what the listing and qualifications were going to be for those who would come serve alongside him in ministry. And as he gave a description of the character and the talents and the dedication that someone would have to have if they came to Burma, he got to the end of that list. And as he got done writing, he wrote to the person who was going to be, uh, you know, listing this for help. He said, how unlike this list, this missionary is. We recognize our own shortcomings, and so in our own resume, whatever we would be able to say about ourselves, ultimately, there's nothing of lasting value apart from the fact that we belong to Jesus. This is what Paul says, verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) How would you like it if somebody said that to you? You think you're supposed to be confident? Let me tell you, you don't have as much reason to be confident as I do. Paul says that and he's being honest. Not only do I have confidence, but I have or I could have confidence, but I have reason to have confidence. Why? Well, he starts to list off his qualifications. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That means as far back as you want to go in my life, I've been following the law and the process of the Lord. My family and those around me, they brought me up in a spiritual upbringing. From the very beginning of my life, I've been walking or following, even before I could choose to do so, uh, I've been in the, in the midst of community of the people of God. I'm a part of the people of Israel. I'm, I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was to tell you, use the phrase this morning, a true American. What phrase or what, what thought comes into your head of what that person looks like? Paul's making that kind of statement. I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees had so many laws that you couldn't even keep all the laws unless you were full-time employed as a Pharisee. And so that meant you really had to be another level of willing to jump over the hurdles and go through the hoops to be a Pharisee. More than likely, the Apostle Paul had committed the entirety of the Old Testament to memory. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't stand up here and and quote that this morning from entirety or even close to it. He was on another level. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I cared so much about the Lord, I was willing to root out and go after those people who I perceived to be his enemies. We come to the book of Acts, and while Stephen is being stoned to death, we see the apostle Paul called then by the name of Saul, holding the coats and approving of what was done. There were people in the early churches that Paul spoke in who had family members that were killed or rounded up to go into prison because of what Paul had done. Imagine what that would be like on a Sunday morning to go into for Paul. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, verse 6, under the law, blameless. And he says, I've got a resume that, you know, looks real good. It's, it's been exactly what it should be. But then he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That all the gain I had, and he would go on to say all the, all the things that I could look back on, they're all rubbish. Now in our Bibles, we we will like that word rubbish even though we don't use that in America very much, that's more of a British word, but we're not quite comfortable with the word garbage or trash being in our Bible so easily. Rubbish helps us get a little bit of a distance maybe from it, but Paul's saying, every good thing I did is trash in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's true in our lives as well. We can boast in nothing else other than the Lord Jesus. There's no other qualifications, there's no other resume, there's no way that any of us this morning can say, well, at least I'm not this person, that person. Somehow, comparatively, I can sort of set myself to be over some other person and and feel good about myself. No, the reality is the standard is Jesus Christ, and everyone has fallen far short of Jesus Christ, and since He has made us His own in trusting in Him, Paul would go on to say, that is the barometer of our righteousness, only Him, and nothing we bring to the table. And so even though our spiritual resume means nothing besides that we belong to Jesus, we see then Paul make the point, number four, that Jesus is worth the cost. Jesus is worth the cost. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." I gave one football illustration, if you'll let me do one more quickly. Some years ago in the 1980s, Walter Payton, a running back for the Chicago Bears, broke the all-time rushing record. And as the commentators who were doing that game recognized that he had rushed, if you don't watch football, that is when a ball carrier carries the ball from the line of scrimmage without a pass being thrown and just runs as far forward as he can get. And they said, you know, Walter Payton has ran more than nine miles worth of yards in his NFL career. And the other commentary, sort of commentator, uh, thinking quickly, said, and that's even more impressive when you realize that somebody knocked him down every four and a half yards. You know, the run for a Christian, the marathon for a Christian is not simply a race. Sometimes it feels like a race where we get knocked down every few feet. And yet the calling is the same. Paul goes on to say that it's worth it because of Jesus. Jesus is worth the cost. Psalm 40, you don't have to look turn back there today, but to just parallel with the Psalms, one of my favorite Psalms says this, "'I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. And He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mire and the clay. And He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm.'" And He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Him. The message of what Jesus Christ has done in our life is not simply that we have entered into a social agreement with Him, but through Christ what He has done is He has inclined His ear to our condition. He has reached down and lifted us out of the mire and the clay and the pit where we existed. And He has set our feet upon the firm foundation of Himself. And He's put a new song in our mouth because of that. Not a song about our own attributes, not a song about our own accomplishments, but a song about who He is and what He's done. And the cry of a Christian who walks with the Lord as the years go by is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. So Jesus is worth the cost. Paul says I count all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul is not saying that through my accomplishments I hope to do enough that I earn a resurrection from the dead someday. No, he's saying, I know, and he'll go on to say that since I belong to Jesus, the resurrection from the dead is something that I've attained because I've known him, and yet at the same time I'm longing to be closer to Jesus because where Jesus is is where the resurrection is. And where Jesus is is where the life is. Jesus is worth the cost. And then number five, finally... In conclusion, I'm getting ready to close. <laughs> we haven't made it yet, but we press on. We haven't made it yet, but we press on. There was a baseball game that happened in 1954 and it featured two rookies. It was the Milwaukee Braves versus, uh, versus the Cincinnati Reds. And The Reds won nine to eight that game, and for the people who were looking on to that baseball game, they saw the two rookies, and one looked a lot more promising than the other one. One rookie was a man named Jim Greengrass. Y'all got his uh, starting lineup figures at home? Jim Greengrass hit four doubles in his first big league game, and everybody said, boy, looks like he'll have a great career. The rookie on the Braves went 0 for 5. And people sort of shook their head as to whether he was going to be worth it as a baseball player. His name was Hank Aaron. You know, it's not always how you start. How you finish matters. And the race, the longevity of the run matters. Paul says this in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Spoiler alert, we won't reach that this side of heaven. but. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Can you think about that verse for just a moment? I press on to make the mission of Christ my own because Jesus Christ has made me His own. The New American Standard translation of this verse says it this way, I press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. In Christ Jesus, that the gospel responded to in our life is pressing on and keeping going, not giving up, not stopping, not falling, not turning around in the other direction. Sometimes we do feel like every four and a half yards we get knocked down, but in the life of a Christian we're called to get back up. Sometimes it's the Lord who has to pick us up and keep going. There's times where he has to carry us so we can keep going, but pressing on. And continuing, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Paul would speak elsewhere to the church to say, I don't run aimlessly. And in this passage, he's also speaking about not running aimlessly. Pressing is when you're going a bit above and beyond your own strength to keep going. If you've ever played on a basketball team that all of a sudden you had a full court press, That means you were going to use even more energy, and you were going to get even further up the court, and you were going to expend all the energy you could to try to force that other team into a turnover. A press is a heightened amount of effort and and emphasis to go in a certain direction. So Paul doesn't say, "I I just drift on, or even that I simply continue on, and I don't run aimlessly, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind. There may be some of you in here this morning who forgiving yourself has been the hardest challenge that you've faced. There may be some of you in here today that whatever you're dealing with in the past that you can't go back and change, keeps waking you up at night and crawling on your back. Jesus said anybody who puts his hand to the plow and looks backward is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so for us, sometimes there's things that we have to deal with and we have to make right and we have to accept the consequences too or whatever that might be, but we're not called to be destroyed by what came previously. We're called to keep our eyes on Jesus and to keep pressing forward. If you need to forgive yourself this morning, if you need to move past something this morning, can I invite you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to press forward and not look backward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I got a chance to speak on this passage at uh, our school's graduation this year, which was really neat. And so for the students who were there for that, I apologize for you to hear some of the same things today. But... As we came to the end of this passage, I couldn't help but think of, in, in many many years ago, uh, when I was running track and field in high school in the late 90s. Um, I uh, I think I said in the first service this morning, it was great seeing Jake come up here because it was a reminder to me. Sometimes when I think of myself as someone who's in their 20s, I can look at Jake and go, No, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm older than that. So many moons ago when I ran track and field in high school, I I did a few different races. I believe the most difficult race in in a track and field meet is the 400 meters. If you've ever been to a track, you know, it's a good size space and 400 meters is one complete time around that track. It is a full sprint for a quarter of a mile. Now, I had Alex Anderson come up to me after the first service and say, actually, the 300 hurdles is the hardest race. And I had to say, well, I never ran that one, so I'll just stick with the 400 meters. But the 400 meters is a complete sprint around the entirety of the track. And I can remember the Davison County track meet in the late 90s, and I got a chance to run what was called the anchor leg in the 4x400 four meter relay. The 4x400 four is the last event in a track meet. If you've ever been a track parent and your kid is running that 4x4, that means you can't go home early. You've got to stay through the whole thing. The lights have gone out and everybody wants to go home. Sometimes it's freezing cold, but that 4x4 has got to happen. And I got to run the 4x4 anchor leg. That means I was the last one to go. So I was going to be the last one to run for the team that day. And we'd been told if we win this race, we win the whole county meet. And I was hoping and praying that the three guys that ran before me were going to get a large enough lead that the fastest guy in Davison County wasn't going to run me down. I was going to have a good enough head start. And thankfully, by the time I got the baton, they had given me a pretty good lead. And I can remember taking off and running as fast as I could. And Like I said, the 400 meters is a full sprint all the way around. You run that first 100 meters around the curve. You run the straightaway for another 100 meters. And whether it was the adrenaline or whatever else, I just felt it going really well. Came around the last curve and I got to that last straightaway and something that hardly ever happens in a track meet happens. All the people who realized the stakes of this race began to stand up and to cheer and it seemed like the stands just erupted in cheers as I just had that last straightaway to go. And I got to that last hundred meters and I can remember feeling in my mind the loss of any feeling in my legs in any way. And I looked at that last hundred meters and I said, Not only am I not going to beat this other guy, I don't think I can even finish this race. I'm going to fall on the ground right here. Sometimes when you're running, it helps to keep the finish line in sight. But there's other times where, at least in my experience of running, the best thing you can do is just try to do one step at a time. And maybe you're even looking down and just trying to get your feet on the ground and to keep going. And I can remember even with that good lead and that guy, you know, making ground on me pretty quick, I just tried to keep going one more step. I'm not going to fall over yet. I'm not going to fall over yet. Before I knew it, by God's grace, I'd gotten to cross that finish line still standing up and still with a good enough lead that the guy hadn't been able to run me down. We ran the track mate. Now that's a kind of pitiful story from my experience, but I think the greatest 400 runner that um, it's been my favorite you know, joy to quote during sermons is a guy named Eric Little. You might know his name. He was a missionary to China who came to fame because he wouldn't run on a Sunday because of his Christian convictions. When his race, the 100 and the 200 were going to be on a Sunday, he decided to run the 400 meters instead. And so in training for the 400 meters, it was an entirely different race and he had to build up a certain amount of stamina. They didn't know how he was gonna do since he wasn't even a 400 runner and he was gonna be running at the Olympics. And you might know the story if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire or if you've heard about his story before, but he ran the 400 in the Olympics and when he did, not only did he win, but he shattered the world record. And Eric Little, who later lost his life Becoming a missionary to China, and at the outbreak of the Second World War, he he lost his life serving the people there. He said two things that I thought were really neat. Number one, he said, I know that God created me to go to China. He knew the long-term calling of his life was to be a missionary in China. But he also said this to his sister who said, why are you wasting your time running when there's people who need the gospel here in China? You shouldn't be running those races. You should be over here with me. And Eric Little said, I know that my calling is to be in China, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure." All around this room today, there there may be some who have called to be be a missionary in a foreign country, but for all the rest of us, the place that we've been called to is the place where God's made us fast. It's the place where God has set us down. It's the place where the relationships, the work, the job, whatever it might be, God's called us to be where we are and to be faithful. They asked Eric Little in training for the 400 what his strategy was going to be. How were you going to pace yourself? What are you going to try to do? What's your approach as you come to the 400 meters? And this is what Eric Little said in my worst Scottish accent today. He said, in running the 400 meters, I run the first 200 meters as hard as I possibly can. And for the second 200 meters, by God's grace, I run even harder. The Apostle Paul is nearing the finish line. For many of us in here today, we're on our last 200 meters. So the question comes down to us: will we press on or not? Will we keep going or not? Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Whether you're in the front 50 meters or the back 100 or anywhere in between, in those days where it feels like somebody's hitting us every four and a half yards, where it feels like the finish line's too far away, where it feels like there's no way I can keep putting one foot in front of the other, will you hear the reminder of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One more step, five more steps, press on. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of where He's calling you. Don't let go of how the truth of who He is shapes everything else about your life. And for those of you in here this morning who perhaps are running a race that you just find yourself running aimlessly or... or you know, losing a lot of energy but gaining very little steam and you've never trusted in Christ who's the only one who builds the resumes of our hearts and lives. He's the only one of any worth. I want to invite you to accept the free gift that he would offer simply to trust in him, the finished work of his death and his resurrection. Would you press on today because Jesus Christ has made you His own. Let's pray together. Will you stand even as we pray this morning? Father, at times the race gets long. Our feet grow weary. And there's times where we do stumble and fall. Lord, would you help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to stand back to our feet and to press on. Lord, as it seemed that the culminating truth for the Apostle Paul is that he had not arrived yet, that all the things that he had spent so many years doing, he recognized were just in his own strength and his own windmills to fight. Lord, as he realized that there was hope found in only Jesus Christ, today as we are just in this room together, if there's someone here who's been placing trust and faith and hope and some other means and some other way, Father, with the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit, call them to Jesus today. Will they trust in the finished work that He's accomplished, that we have been laid hold of by Him. And for Christians in this room, Lord, may they recognize that they've been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And so, Father, would you help us to press on when our feet grow weary when circumstances are tough. Lord, whether it's our own heart or whether it's our own outside, you know, uh, struggles, what we deal with coming either from others or ourselves, the, the span from dogs to evil workers to faults, religion, and false legalism. Lord, would you help us to cast those things aside as garbage and to hold tightly to the Lord Jesus, not putting confidence in ourselves, but in you. Lord, however you'd use the truth of your word today in our hearts, we come to you just in response now. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.